but I think in that there is this interest for me of like in our whiteness and our attachment, our deep attachment to whiteness, what do we have to let go of? And I think about within death, that moment moving through the stages of grief, of denial, anger, bargaining, all of these things I see in white behavior in moments when we are challenged with our privilege, our power. Hello and welcome to the Emergent Strategy Podcast, hosted by the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute, ESII. We're a collective of facilitators, mediators, trainers, and curious human beings interested in how we get in right relationship with change. Today, I'll be guiding our interview. I'm Sage, ESII's architect. Emergent Strategy is the way we generate and reshape complex systems and patterns with relatively simple interactions. And today's guest, I am ridiculously excited uh, to introduce Ashley Sparks. Ashley is a theater maker, a coach for liberation. Uh, She is one of the principal facilitators and consultants, and maybe owner of Spark and Dive, doing work around policy and culture out in the world, and one of the co-creators with Mark and Sparks. Again, beautiful work on uh, theater work, making theater work around how we shift policy. Uh, was that was that pretty accurate, Ashley? Was that, was that close? That sounded really good. All right. She does things, folks. Lots of amazing things. <laughs> hey, Ashley, how are you right now today? Today is an okay day. I've been spending time with family and that has its own levels of stress and complexity but today has been okay so far yeah hold on hold on to the okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah so one of the things we've been doing with this podcast is that adrian mia and i pretty much we sit around and we're like who do we think are emergent strategists and we come up with names and we're like yes let's invite a conversation and when your name came up, it was like, oh, let's think about what an emergent strategy feels aligned with the work that you do in the world, right? And so we were like, oh, adaptation, interdependence, creating more possibility, all of those feel really core when, when I look at your work uh, from the outside in. Um, do you accept this premise as an emergent strategist? Like, is that, are you like, yeah, I'm an emergent strategist. And if so, like, what, what makes that feel resonant to you? I do accept that premise. And I think, especially as a theater artist, fundamentally from early on in my practice as an artist, creating more possibilities has just been part of what I do. And because of working in ensemble theater in particular and devising new work, there's always this cycle of adaptation and iteration and kind of generating new things. And so I think for me, being an emergent strategist is interwoven with my practice as an artist and how those principles kind of show up in the work consistently. Oh, that's exciting. Is there a particular element or principle that you're like, ah, this one though, man, give me some shoehorn and some, some grease. How do I work that? At this moment, I don't, There's a, when I think about interconnectedness, interdependence, iteration, adaptation, fractals, like all of these feel so much a part of what my practice and process has been for a really long time. And what Emergent Strategy did is give me, it's like, it's a space of putting some language around something that felt deeply organic and intuitive. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of this, where I think resilience for me is an interesting question. And ha- like, what does my practice of resilience look like as an artist or um, 
as an organizer, as a facilitator, like that becomes the place where I'm really kind of exp- feels like maybe that's where I'm kind of shoehorning or like trying to figure out what that looks like. And at the same time, I hold as a theater person, so much of it is about rehearsal and practice and trying things on. And mm-hmm. that for me lays a foundation for building the muscles of resilience because you're, pra- you're trying, you're just trying shit out all the time. And so mm-hmm. hopefully that leads to being, hopefully being more resilient <laughs> in, in how I navigate the world and how I support others in navigating the world because we're just practicing things. And so there's a permission of practice and rehearsal that I think, mm-hmm. but I don't know how deep, like I'm curious if you, how you think about resilience and that kind of relationship to rehearsal or practice. Yeah, uh, there's a great definition out there of resilience by a brilliant Black uh, somatic practitioner named uh, Alta Star. And um, this body of work around resilience done by Peoples in Education, which is one of the sponsored projects of, of Allied Media Projects. And the, the definition is like resilience is moving towards that which is life affirming. All right, like how do you how do you stay in in the in the practice as you're talking about of moving towards that which is life affirming? And I think about that. That feels to me when I when I look at your work really part of the the possibility that you're generating, right? Like you're you're generating life, you're generating things that are life affirming. Mm-hmm. You also have a deep um, practice of care in in whether it's theater work, whether it's facilitation, like that you've mentioned that you've talked to me about that being core. Can you talk a little bit more about what care means and, and how that. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that guides so much of my work is, is hospitality. And that comes out of being a Southerner and kind of my working class family roots. Like there, you, it's not a house of strangers. (laughs) Like when you're in the house, you are now with us. And there's a, a sense of, come be at the table. Let me feed you. Let me take care of you. Let me like, what do you need? And that drives so much of my work as a, as a theater maker and also as a facilitator of what does it mean to hold the room with a, with a deep sense of hospitality and caretaking and what becomes possible when you just are in this place of constant invitation of come on in, let's see what happens. And let me meet you where you are and how are you showing up today? And what does that look like? And what does that feel like? And how do we, how does that inform what we can do together when I, when we know that? Mm-hmm. Mm, I love that deep invitation. One of the things that we're, we're spending some time in season two talking with folks about is lineage right? and, and how it feels really important even more so, I don't, I don't necessarily know why, but it does feel more important to be able to place ourselves in, in a lineage of work, a lineage of political thought, a lineage of cultural thought, like as, as a way to understand where we are clearly in our positionality right now so that we can be generative moving forward, right? So I'm, I'm curious when you think about some, um, some of the folks or some of the thoughts, because it's not always people, sometimes it's concepts that, that you are in the lineage of um, politically, um, artistically. What, mm-hmm. do you, what do you think about? What comes up for you? I think about my grandfather, Andy Nathan Sparks, as someone who uh, was a deacon in the Southern Baptist Church and in our particular church. There, there's a saying that the Baptists multiply by dividing. Um, because because it's, <laughs> because it's a it's a democratic structure in terms of how the church is governed mm-hmm. each church has its own democratic structure inside of it and so as a deacon you're always navigating a lot of complex things of whatever issues are coming up in the church and so my grandfather was incredibly diplomatic in his ability to navigate hard conversations inside the church and move things forward. And I also like this question of political lineage for me sits inside of 
I grew up in a in a politically divided house. My father is very conservative and my mother is not. And there's this sense of having to having to find common ground with people you love and yet you disagree with. And so there's a practice from a very young age of being in very hard conversations, but still grounded in love. And all of that lives outside of like the political lineage of, okay, what's my social justice framework? And Mm -hmm. the kind of, okay, yes, I've spent, like I've done workshops at Highlander and the cultural organizing and coming out of things like the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond and Alternate Roots and these sort of places of analysis and practice at the same time. And so I don't, like you, Sage Crump, are this incredible like student in a way that amazes and inspires me. And I just feel... Sometimes when we talk, I have these moments of, what is Sage learning now? (laughs) Because you're always in classes and there's a rigor to your study that I, it's one of the things I admire about you. And I don't, and I don't have that. (laughs) Like, I'm not the philosopher in the way that you are. I am very much, where's my, like, let's just go make something. Let's go do something. And so I feel as though I live in praxis more than, than potentially analysis. And I feel like a discomfort in that, in the context of we're looking at political lineage. (laughs) I'm like, well, I have my complicated family. Um, And so there's this, Like, I don't come from organizers. I come from a construction superintendent and a lab technician. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we talked about politics, but there was no framework of going and doing or being advocates or campaigning or any, like, or organizing. And so I, I think Alternate Roots was really a place where I cut my teeth at that intersection of what is the practice of what we're doing? How does that reflect our values? Mm-hmm. As a at that at that time, very much a participatory democracy, and figuring out how to do that and be an artist. What am I? What am I making that is reflective of those values? And so I think that that's the. And I would lift up Bob Leonard and my like learning about. I, I think he was one of the first people that really just said to me, "All art is political. Are you supporting the status quo or not?" And how are you, how is the work that you're creating, Mm. at least for me, disrupting status quo and whatever that starts to look like, hopefully maybe there's a line dance (laughs) or ice cream sandwiches. There's some sort of play and invitation that also allows you to disrupt the status quo to create some space for something different. I love that the disrupt because I feel like there's a, a a lens on disruption that sometimes is aggressive or is um, um, agitating or irritating. Well, for some people, line dancing could be irritating. I don't know, but you know, oh, it, it can be. It can, like I, I've watched some folks just like really shut down around a line dance, but I've also watched advocates really shut down on. I'm asking you to sit in a circle without a table, and it's like. I have asked them to (laughs) do something (laughs) like eat a child. I don't know. Like I've asked them to do something horrific when all I've asked them to do is sit in a circle without a table and just talk. See, Like it's a (laughs) part. This is why it feels important for you to be um, a part of this season. Because I think for a lot of us, like, we do this work and we're we're struggling in different ways. But you do what I consider the Lord's work. 
if folks don't can't sit in a circle with a level of comfort, like that's that's a body of folks that um, I know I personally would have a really hard time in a room with. And it's a choice that you've made, and I'm I'm really interested in like even the way you describe your you like not coming from political family yet here you are like deep in this room, deep in this work. What is that journey like? And when did emergent strategy enter into it for you? I mean, I think in some ways the journey, the journey emerged of shifting out of, I had been in a, working in a theater ensemble for eight years and then um, st- was doing other work in the theater sphere. And then that started to, that started to close. And there was this opening in the advocacy space where I was basically invited can, can you facilitate a couple meetings for us? Which then evolved into really supporting a network to do a series of annual convenings, supporting a hiring. It just became like the door just opened. It was this incredibly emergent process. And I never lied about who I was. <laughs> I never said, guys, I'm an artist. <laughs> and so you just need to know that because I'm bringing all that into the room. But because that's who I am, that's what I brought into the room. And so I brought, I, I'm bringing in story. I am bringing in stickers. I am bringing in music. I am bringing in snacks. You know, there's a way in which I'm just, it's not what you asked me for. You asked me to just facilitate a meeting and organize a gathering of people. And yet because of who I am and because of my work as an artist, all of this is coming with me even if it's not what you wanted or asked for. <laughs> I'm going to offer you some candy. Um, and so, nice. and I think within that emergent strategy mm. layers in because I am looking at meeting people where they are. Okay, what is, what is this group of advocates? Where are they stuck right now? Where are they in conflict? Where are they not being honest with themselves or the group. And then what does that mean to create the container of creating more possibilities? What does that mean to create a container in coalition building around and network building around interdependence? And that those principles start to weave into how we gather how, what the structure of the meeting is, the questions we're asking each other, the questions I'm prompting them to explore, like all of that starts to weave in at the, at the base. There's a, there are these threads that are linking that just, at least for me, in terms of emergent strategies, just feel like they're woven into the fabric of my agenda design. Hmm. And there are time. There have been times specifically in agendas. I'll even like call out or highlight or point out. This is this is my personal backdoor thing that I'm sneaking in is getting this group to grapple with interdependence. Mm. Now, am I transparent about that in my agenda? Does it say that on the agenda? Probably not. It's going to say team building. <laughs> Because that's the language that that advocates in the certain policy spaces that I've been navigating can say, oh, yeah, we, we need some team building. And I'm like, great, we can do that. When actually, hopefully, you're leaving with a deeper sense of connectivity and interdependence with your colleagues. And that, for me, is the, the fractal moment of in these small teams, can they can they find deeper relationships and what becomes possible when they do that with each other, when they start to think about designing policy and who they're doing that with and for. Mm. Mm. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I'm really curious. Um, I hear both like personally, you, you're, you come in as a theater maker and I'm also curious about like, the use of candy and line dancing and I make <laughs> mixtapes. I will definitely make a mixtape for each meeting and pie. Yes. There, sometimes there's homemade pie. Um, how that, how that plays into um, the, the 
tilling of the soil to prepare for like change and transformation, right? Like, what is that? What do you believe that those kinds of experiences do to people um, in order to support our collective moving towards a collective vision of a more just world? So there are a couple of things for me. There's a softness that starts to happen, especially with adults. And this is from the before times when we could be in the room together. But it's amazing to watch grown folks get real, kind of stodgy grown folks sometimes get really excited about some M&Ms and stickers. And so there's a, there's this, there's a, things start to start to soften and there's a little bit of space. And so then on a somatic level, the, the fight flight or freeze isn't as intense. My body has literally started to relax because I know that we're in a space where there's going to be some music. We're actually, it's going to, I'm part of it is how am I taking the, it's not taking conflict out. It's actually, how are we creating a space where conflict can live, but still, but folks still remain grounded and open. And so there's something for me in the hospitality in the in the playfulness that actually can create that sense of oh i can i can have this harder conversation because the stakes don't feel as high and it's this thing around we're, we're just in rehearsal we're trying to figure it out we're just practicing right now having maybe we're practicing having a hard conversation we're actually having it but as a facilitator it's this giving permission to just we're just figuring things out and here, do you want some candy while we're figuring it out? <laughs> yes. You know, it's a, it's a comfort. It's a, it's I, I for those that. of us who like to eat our feelings. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a comfort moment, you know, oh, or God, having, okay. <laughs> taking into, again, very kind of white dominant, predominantly white organizations that are very buttoned up saying like, we're going to pass around some, you know, some aromatherapy and some stickers and just see how you do and watch folks have that agitation. And then also relief. Mm-hmm. Of, oh, I can show up a little, I, this facilitator, this person who's holding the space doesn't expect me to be guarded or like, I don't have to be as buttoned up as mm-hmm. I normally do. And that's okay. So there's a sense of permission that I think the hospitality and the small edibles, <laughs> yes, can be helpful. I love that that softening and the ways in which um, the relationship between culture and conflict, right? Like if you create a culture that that allows the somatic softening, then conflict doesn't feel so so jarring. It's, it feels like an almost like a martial arts practice for for our emotional bodies, right? Of like you go with the with the with what it feels like is the impact, and you move with it. So mm-hmm. if you if you tighten, you're going to feel it, and you're more likely to break than if you can kind of move with it, move with it. How beautiful! And so you don't drown in it, hmm. or get like caught in the undertow of it. That kind of emotional flooding that can happen sometimes. Yeah. I think depending on how the container is set folks, there's less drowning. (laughs) Say a little bit more about that. What kind of drowning have you seen or. Um, What immediately came up is thinking about in multiracial contexts. I just immediately flashed to a moment of a, a very weepy, one of one of my very weepy white women who was just drowned, just flooded around a very hard conversation related to race. And what is, and needing to be able to pivot the space so that her flooding doesn't, doesn't drown the room and cause more damage um, was the kind of, first initial impulse the image that came up in that question oh that's a great that's a great example because i think there's a again going back to the the practice of hospitality and care that you have there's also um an awareness of what's happening in the room 
with um, like this one white woman who's all weepy and the, you know, that, that what you are having is flooding and that is a real experience. And also you cannot take the whole room there. Right. Feels like now is a good time to, uh, uh, we were joking that we want to just give a, an awareness that this is a conversation between a black woman and a white woman who have known each other for over 15 years. <laughs> so wherever this conversation goes, this does not mean you can just run up to random black or white people and start this and land here. We've got years of this practice, just naming that for the folks who are listening. <laughs> um, because I think it, I, I am interested in, in uh, like I want to talk about your work with showing up for racial justice and what does it mean to be, you know, a white organizer organizing with white people around things like um, like white people for black lives and how emergent strategy has maybe played into that. And also what does it mean around your cultural work and your organizing? Yeah, those are such good questions. And what it brought up for me, Sage, was this question going back about kind of the how and the why I've ended up in the spaces I've been in for the last couple of years. I hold this personal charge around go work with your people. (laughs) And that means that sometimes I need to be in the predominantly white spaces. And what does it mean for me to be in these white, especially white dominant culture spaces, working to try and disrupt that? and create other possibilities for white bodies to behave in new and different ways and also invite them to practice doing different things that are about unraveling (laughs) the shit that we have been that is in our dna and i think as a as a cultural organizer and somebody who's been active in terms of white people for black lives there's a Sometimes what I find is how am I, how are the values and principles that are important to me around hospitality, around really trying to meet people with curiosity and love, how those guide me in a space when white folks can be so vicious with other white folks. And there's also... Culturally, I I come from a culture of hospitality, now living on the West Coast. (laughs) Like I've had, we've had, we've butted up against cultural differences just in terms of how I understand organizing in this white body and the ways in which hospitality is just like what you do and you hang out and you feed people. And what I found in living on the West Coast now and being active in California, it's a different, like, the the hospitality has been a thing that that particular some of my organizing peers have had to learn over time because yeah. it was so much like we got to do the work we got to do the work and we've got to show up and do the protest and the direct action and da, 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 da. and I'm like when is the potluck and <laughs> oh it's now but everybody's gonna leave right on time this is the strangest thing. <laughs> Like, you know, and so there's, there's both the ways it shows up for me culturally of the ways that I am trying to practice dismantling white dominant culture. And then also the ways it shows up in our collective work and how we are growing as white people for black lives. And so, uh, and it's been beautiful to watch that journey and that evolution and things shift over time. And the, mm-hmm. again, when I think about emergent strategy, so much of it for me, you know, it's two things are coming up. One, just my default of creating more possibilities, because part of it is how are we in our white bodies finding new ways of being? And then I think about resilience in the context of what are the muscles I have to build to to be okay with all the shit I have to unravel and dismantle in myself. Mm. And so there's a, Mm -hmm. there's a sturdiness and resilience that I have to develop over time so that when, when I butt up against my, my own whiteness, I don't unravel and flood. Mm. 
the night queen Cause I live in the dark I'm thinking, you've got me thinking about um, um, the powerful nature of dams, right? Like, and the ability for a dam to create electricity. I mean, you could also talk about dams, you know, artificially moving waterways, but you know, (laughs) it also is a way to, to talk about like, when, when is the flood helpful and when is it not, you know, when, um, where do you lean, when is it, when are you leaning in and how, one of the things I think is that at the core of emergent strategy and just in a lot of the ways folks are organizing now and moving forward is we are, we are organizing on the level of relationship, you know? And when I listen to you, I think about the, there's a really clear through line between relationship to material conditions change, right? Like that, that you seem, you hold both of those really deeply in your work. Does that feel true? That does feel really true. Shit's got to change. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I hold this, just to name, like I hold such this tension between meeting people where they are and my own sense of shit needed to change a long time ago, <laughs> you know? And so it's like, we're past due. And mm-hmm. so wanting things to move faster and yet things move at the speed of trust, meet people where mm-hmm. they are. And so I find my, there's a lot of just, I think it, it brings up for me this kind of internal, contra- these moments of contradiction of when am I, am I being complicit in something? Am I not pushing hard enough? Or am I meeting somebody where they are and trying to figure out the steps to move folks along? And knowing that we're already past due. So I, it, it's, I grapple with that in terms of my own practice and what is my edge of pushing or not pushing complicity, curiosity. No, that's good. That, that's good. Like the, and that's where it seems like you also find you know, the, the wonderful world of fractals, right? Of like the self, the collective, the the transformation for the world and 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 naming complicity in that is part of what creates more space for different ways of being right because if you pretend like complicity doesn't exist then um you're limiting you know you're not actually engaged in the full scope of what's happening and i think part of um where I'm interested in in taking our conversation is this idea of like in the in the full scope of living. And I know you've done some work around being a death doula. And um, last was it last summer? It's, it's it's COVID time. I don't know if it was last summer or summer before. It last. could have been like 800 years ago. I it, really it, it might have been <laughs> <laughs> that um, we both decided to read the five invitations together. And the five invitations, discovering what death can teach you about living fully. And so I'm, I want to take a moment and talk a little bit about, because I think you were the first person who talked, what, who talked to me about thinking about the relationship between being a death doula and the end of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, can you share your thoughts on that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think as an artist, I, I've been really, I did this project a couple of years ago called Good Old Boys where uh, it was plays for parking lots. (laughs) And so we were performing in spaces um, where my dad and his buddies hang out, like gas stations, the Hardy's parking lot. Uh, I'm from a very small um, town in Virginia. And, And so the first draft of the script, the it's two brothers. And in the first draft of the script, the first iteration, one of them dies and it's basically dying because of 
toxic masculinity and white supremacy and patriarchy or like all those things just like eat him from the inside out. And, mm. um, and what became interesting is that in reading that of, of doing some workshop readings in community folks were like, he can't die in the end. <laughs> like that doesn't give me any hope for change. Hmm. And what we need right now is hope for change. Um, and belief that, and at least for me, and a belief that like my people can, can be better and do better. So in the, in the final version, he didn't die. It's kind of left in this, like, you're not quite sure what happens. Um, but he, he is, he, he does continue to get to go fishing. Um, you know, it's up to your interpretation. Okay. Um, and so, uh, but I think in that there is this interest for me of like in our whiteness and our attachment, our deep attachment to whiteness, what do we have to let go of? And I think about within death, that moment moving through the stages of grief, of denial, anger, bargaining, all of these things I see in white behavior, in moments when we are challenged with our privilege, our power. And so I have curiosity, and that was one of the things about the five invitations around how do the principles of when we are actually dying apply to what is my relationship to my own whiteness and the historical legacy that I carry related to it. And there's something, and so in the five invitations, one of the principles is around welcome everything, push nothing away. And that Hmm. in, can I do that in my white body? Can I actually acknowledge the history of, of genocide in this country? Can I acknowledge the current genocides that are happening by people who look like me? And not push that mm-hmm. away, not pretend like that is not me, mm-hmm. that those are not my people, but actually build my capacity to, to see the fullness of that truth. And there's this beautiful quote in here of most of us choose comfort over truth. But when you think about it, we don't grow and transform in our comfort zones we grow when we realize we're no longer able to control all the conditions of our lives and therefore challenge to change ourselves. Oof. Nobody asked you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, thank you. Thank you, Frank, from Thanks. the five invitations. And it's like, what does that mean in my white body? Like, what are the things that I'm like, I have to sit, I have to build my capacity to be in discomfort. I cannot push that away. Mm-hmm. Um. And so, and what is, what does that mean to help support other white folks when they are flooding, mm-hmm. when they are pushing clearly angry and bargaining and all the things that we kind of clutch onto, um, to be able to sit and, and, and hold that to move through it in order to get to the place of release, acceptance and deep love for what's next. Mm. And um, I would imagine as a facilitator, like as a facilitator, the get to what's next, right? Like, uh-huh. it, you know, to get to whatever the gathering, the goals of the gathering, whatever the policy conversation needs to be to get to what's next. Yeah. And you've also done that recently um, with a work that you and uh, Mark Valdez, your, your, co-collaborator, co-conspirator in Mark and Sparks um, with some work you all just recently created. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. The Most Beautiful Home Maybe is an experiment that Mark Valdez and I are cooking on. And it's looking at can art change policy? And so we're, we're asking the central question around, can we have a homes guarantee? Well, can we even imagine what this country would look like if everyone had a home, a stable, healthy home, how different would our communities look? Um, and, and really beautiful. Like when I think about that question, I'm like, Oh my God, how much beauty and potential is in that in terms of who we could be as a country, if we chose to, to create a homes guarantee, 
And mm-hmm. so um, we're inviting advocates to dream in the policy space. Can can you actually think about that? Can you give yourself permission to imagine what that would look like? And creating opportunities for general audiences to start to understand the complexities and nuances of uh, housing policy, because it's a very complicated landscape. So we're trying to help folks understand understand the layers of the issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, I brought that up because I, I it may have seemed like a strange sort of segue <laughs> from this conversation around death and the 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 ways in which processing a um, processing a, a corporeal, a physical death and its relationship to the same sort of emotional terrain that may happen when someone is um, walking through the death of part of their identity, what they have held on to. Um, and then this performance work that you all are creating that is, is fantastical in some ways, right? And and fantastical in a way that I wonder um, how you see the the elements of of that work helping folks open um, see and walk through the the pathways to what what they have to push through of their own identity in order to actually even doing what you're asking, which is envision what the world would be like. Imagine what the world would be like if everyone had a safe, stable home. Uh, so for the listeners, I want you to imagine a, a set that has a green astroturf platform and in the middle of it enters a beautiful, exquisite, cabaret singing zebra (laughs) who just is a fucking fantastic singer. (laughs) Carla Mosley is amazing. And if you want to get on her Instagram, there's this really beautiful clip from rehearsal of her breastfeeding her child while singing about imagining going to the future <laughs> like during oh, rehearsal wow. one day. And it was just this amazing moment of both as artists knowing like we're, we're trying to rehearse the future right now. Like she as a new mother with a three month old who is a fantastic performer is like killing it as a mom rehearsing, performing, just making beautiful work and she's the zebra and so the reason we went with zebras is because because we knew people people don't listen to people 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 watch cat videos and so you know and so we will watch the cute animal do the thing my friend the octopus Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Lovely. And so, um, and we don't, there's a, there's an empathy and compassion fatigue that we have because there are so many hard stories out there. And we, as artists, we're trying to figure out how do we deal with this really hard content and really like depressing and heavy data about life expectancy, about inequities related to black home ownership about there's no city right now in the U S where a person working 40 hours a week at a minimum wage job can afford a two bedroom apartment. I saw that. Yeah. You know, so it's like, we're dealing with this very heavy data and yet how do we do that in a way that doesn't just flood the audience and shut us down. And so we use music and we use a singing zebra who is really great (laughs) and people stay with us and are able to build that sense of, I can stay with the hard thing. I'm not shutting down and I'm able to see something else beyond what we know is the truth right now and imagine a different future. But we're able to do that because we're clearly in the land of imagination. We're on, we're, we're in an astroturf platform mm-hmm. with 
zebras and board games and donuts. And that gives us a lot of space to imagine that some, that the world could be really different. We just have to make a choice right now to do that. And so is the, is then the connection to that, like to move from the imagination to act to, to what the ask of folks to be or do or engage policy in, in new ways. How do you, how, what is the, the fulcrum for that for you? Like, is it, is it by the invitation of the people? Is it like, how do you engage that in the, as a cultural worker? Uh, in the current, yeah, in the current structure, the performance is one piece of a bigger constellation. So for example, when we just did the show in Minneapolis, we did a teach-in as one, mm-hmm. one day during the run of the show. And that was, we encouraged audience members who wanted to know more about housing policy to go to the teach-in. And there were maybe about 20 people who came and they got a 101 into the basics of affordable housing. And then we had somebody from the Community Land Trust talk about current, um, the, the Community Land Trusts that are currently happening around the Twin Cities and how they're structured, how they work. And at one point, this, this woman raised her hand and said, how do I get my house into a Community Land Trust? And so it's this moment of, I've been to see a play, I now came to a teach-in. I'm now starting to think about how do I invest my land, my the, the land mm. I currently have, mm-hmm. into a collective. And that, that for me is the leap in which general audiences, once they know about housing policy, can start to engage in a policy wow. conversation in a different way. Yeah, it was really powerful. And there were also people who came to see the show there's a sector in affordable housing called naturally occurring affordable housing, NOAA mm-hmm. landlords. Um, and there were people who came to see the show that said, I didn't know I'm a NOAA landlord. We've been running out the ADU to this family for the last 10 years. We totally, you know, mm-hmm. just this whole thing. Um, uh, exists, but people, people don't know. And so that's also a moment of, oh, if I, now I know I can now help be an advocate for me, what I need to tell policymakers to help make sure I can keep Mm -hmm. my, the property that I currently Mm. manage affordable, but I didn't know I was even a part of that market. (laughs) I didn't, you know, so there's a sense within the performance of giving people access to voting resources, educational resources, um, and then pathways to be, to tap into community conversations that are happening about housing. So the show is one piece of this bigger constellation. And then we're also doing this whole track with advocates. How do, how are we getting advocates to imagine something different rather than incremental solutions? And so we're doing professional development workshops, a digital version of the show to help them imagine and play oh. in a different way, which for me is all of, goes back to this thing of how are we disrupting white dominant culture, which prioritizes certain sets of things and capitalism over community needs. And part of that means working with advocates to say, let's try something different and disrupting the business as usual or the status quo of how they think work is supposed to look. Mm, thank you so much for taking us through, through that whole um, journey and how the moose. Uh, so, I mean, this, this whole conversation has been quite a journey from throwing out candy and stickers to um, the role of culture and other singing, to zebras. singing zebras so. to um, death dueling to, <laughs> Um, workshops and and naturally occurring affordable housing spaces. What's what's emerging for you? <laughs> like, do you have a sense of the, the the next question or what's on the what's on the edge uh, for you right now? What's a resonant question you're holding? The question I hold a lot that I just me personally, Sage, I'm holding a lot right now is this relationship between. Um, the individual and the collective 
which isn't anything we've talked about. It's just a question I'm really holding mm-hmm. in my life right mm-hmm. now. <laughs> so tell us more about how you're holding that question. Where does it, what's its lineage? Where does it come from? What is, what is, what is the, the, the chunky part not the, the, of, of that question? It could be the juicy part, but what is the, the part about the holding the individual and the collective that feels on the edge for you? If I'm really honest, what's on the edge is what is it that I actually need to make that is about how I am moving and creating in the world? And then what are the things that live with, that I make with others? Because the majority of my work is made with others. And that's because I'm a theater dork and that's all I know how to do is collaborate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And just like, I, like, let me get all my friends together and we make the thing. <laughs> and so, which is delightful. And at the same time, I'm really trying to suss out what are the, for myself, can I give myself mm. permission to just make some things that are going to be just the things that Ashley makes on her own? And it, how much of that is my own fear of... yeah doing something independent when I have values of interdependence and collaboration. And so I'm just, I, I, it's a thing that I'm just grappling with right now. Mm. That feels like good grappling. Mm -hmm. I'm excited for this question for you, both as your comrade and as your good friend and what that then offers all of us um, from getting to be in relationship with you. Thank you so much for this time, Ashley. Thank you so much for this this when you and and your sharing so appreciate so appreciate you um and want to thank you all for listening to our conversation thank you all so much um, i'm so <laughs> grateful sage for you and also to the folks who listened uh just a lot of gratitude for folks bringing curiosity and being game This podcast is produced by Natalie Parrott. Music for the Emergent Strategy Podcast is provided by Hooray for the Riffraff and their album Life on Earth. To support the ongoing work of ESII, make a donation at www.alliedmedia.org forward slash ESII.